Hello and welcome to Resonant Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Mark Smith, and I'm the tech editor of Resonant Advisor. This week's exchange is with DJ Rupture. Jace Clayton has been ahead of the curve as a genre-defying DJ, producer, and author for over a decade now. His new book, Uproot, weaves together stories from his world travels, helping us to understand how music and culture behave in a digital age. Speaking with Max Pearl from his home in New York, Clayton runs through the stories behind his pioneering DJ mixes and productions, setting the scene for a career that's consistently challenged preconceptions and expanded what's possible in electronic music. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with DJ Rupture is up next. Jace Clayton, aka DJ Rupture. Uh, he just put out a book called Uproot, which is sort of about how music and culture and technology move around in the 21st century. I figured that would be a, a pretty good uh, pretty good excuse to get you in the studio and, and ask you about your life story. <laughs> Great. The first mix you ever put on CD was in 2001, and it was called Gold Teeth Thief. Yes. Can you kind of describe what was going on culturally in that moment? Yeah. Um, in a way, the answer was very little. You know, at the time I was, at the time I was living in Madrid, but I'd sort of come up DJing in Boston, you know, <clears throat> and then I'm um, like, and like, you know, started DJing in 96, I guess, 20 years ago now. But yeah, at the time, you know, if you wanted to hear house music, you'd go to the house club. If you wanted to hear reggae, you'd go to the reggae club, hip hop, hip hop club. So everything was very kind of like, you know, segregated like this, this, this. And not only that, but very, I was finding that the experience was very flat, of clubbing, you just go, go like same tempo, same vibe all night long, you know. And so that was the origins of my name. I'm like rupture, like ah, it's like up in this. Um, and then also my mixing style, you know, like a bunch of friends and I slowly put together a collective called Tone Burst, and our idea was to just sort of like mix it up, you know, people doing trying to do live drum and bass experiments, doing experimental electronics, people DJing weird stuff, and we were just like, let's try and create a space for this that doesn't exist yet. Um, and so in many ways, Gold Teeth Thief was just the sort of a result of that kind of like trying to shake things up in Boston and figuring out my own DJ style and trying to fold more and more types of sounds and dynamics into what I was DJing. Right. I remember getting a copy of that mix when I was in high school. And what was really interesting was it felt like everything was up for grabs. Mm-hmm. And I had never really heard that kind of highbrow, lowbrow, like, let's bring it all together. Like, was there an, like an antecedent? to this like where did this come from when did you realize these genre limitations were just meaningless <laughs> it's funny not no real antecedent in a way it was it's this this thing of like you know i've been listening to records and cds and whatever for a long time i'm like i feel really close to all these different corners of my record collection like let's see if i can come up with a mixing style that kind of gives homage to that you know that's a natural flowing point from that and when i started DJing in the first place, I was just crazy into jungle. I was like, this music is so exciting. It's so polyglot, so many ideas. You know, this was kind of like peak era, when, at least when it was hitting Boston in 96. Um, and so for about, you know, nine months, 12 months, that felt limitless, like endless exploration. But then that sort of, you know, kind of straightened out, standardized, it lost that sort of exuberant glee, it kind of solidified a bit into drum and bass, um, became more minimalist. And then I was just like, no, this, this I, I, I love, D- at, at that point, I'd realized that I love DJing. But then the music, I was like, okay, the music is no longer exciting me. I need to bring sort of my own voice into it. And then I was like, well, hip hop records, acapellas, dance hall. And then, you know, and then the thread goes deeper. And there were always flickers, you know, like Muda Masik, Egyptian Italian woman living in Brooklyn who was mixing. She was the first person I saw to mix drum and bass with dance hall. You know, like the Sound Lab parties that Beth Coleman, DJ Singe was putting on. Um, 
and just kind of like that sort of it's kind of like ill being at school people kind of with a wide open approach to DJing you know cold cut had a mix called was it like journeys by DJ cold cut totally studio tracked but but very kind of like open ended in its way tell me about the tone burst parties i mm-hmm. i remember hearing about one called junk that oh, was yeah. pairing punk bands with jungle dj yeah yeah so term, let's see tone burst um the very first Jake Trussell, a.k.a. DJC, was was a very central figure. Um, but there's a, a whole bunch of us, you know, it was a bunch of students, a bunch of people involved in the like, community radio around Boston. Um, and so the first parties were just in, like, weird art spaces, you know, in and around, like, the Boston area. One called Junk, yeah, which was, like, Jungle versus Punk. It was in a, I think, like, a Unitarian church. You know, it was like $5 entry, you know, like free rice and beans being served. And then we're like, okay, these are kind of comparable energies. Like we're getting in this drum and bass and like crazy electronic music and a sort of live live punk band. So let's have them back to back, like 15, 20 minute sets just throughout the afternoon at this all ages show. So, yeah, that's the kind of thing we were up to. At some point we did a party in the Children's Museum. I was in Europe, so I couldn't attend it. But like we kind of turned it into this rave. Once we did a sort of like a warehouse party in Worcester, where I lived when I was a kid, but it was really funny because we were taking our, we're like, okay, you know, like $5. We were really into like inexpensive door free and like freaky music inside and nobody can complain, you know, because it's cheap and it's open. And there somehow it just slipped into the sort of like commercial rave network. So all these people are showing up and being like, wait, it's only $5? Like what's going on? And they get inside and, and it's like, you know, Keith Fort and Whitman doing modular synth stuff in one room. And I'm like DJing like weird, weirdo, hard to dance, dance music in another. And people got upset, you know, at the end of the night, someone was maced. <laughs> so, yeah, but most, most of the parties were, were kind of great, you know, and going from performers outnumbering audience to, you know, like 600 people, 700 people, like a real kind of moment. What was the sound of Tone Burst or around that time? Yeah, so I can play you something I did. I probably produced this. 2000, 2001, you know, but in a way it's the production style that was emerging from my whole engagement with that, you know, so it's, I mean, I'm sure you'll recognize it. Aaliyah R.I.P. Here we go. culturally at that was that like <laughs> knife hand chop and kid 606 this kind of yeah aggro yeah, moment right? yeah exactly totally and so that was yeah that was me like just taking the a cappella and then like add the, producing the drums around it and stuff but there are a bunch of other people kind of with the same mode and kid 606 exactly he was like you know he was one of the people i sent gold teeth thief to i was like hey i use like some weird song with cat noises of yours so i here's the mix. Um, and then he loved it. And then he sort of re-released it. And that led to, I don't know, a relationship with his label and touring a lot with Miguel. I think I remember reading in your book that one of your early clubbing experiences was at a place called The Loft down on Stewart Street. Mm, um, mm-hmm. Can you set the scene a little bit for yeah. that? Yeah. It was the only sort of all, like, after-hours 
party in Boston, pretty much. And so, you know, and so it was fantastic. And two, two floors. The first floor was a bit more, um, was like house, you know, so DJ Bruno and Armand Van Helden at the time were sort of holding court there. And then in the smaller upstairs room, it was like rave music, so faster techno and whatever. And then at some point, they started playing hour-long sets of Jungle, and that was what blew my mind. But yeah, I was just, just kind of going there regularly. And it was the first time I just sort of realized that you know, like club nights and club spaces can have their own, not just audience, but like own history, almost own customs, you know? I was like, oh yeah, they're people I only knew through like seeing them there and dancing with them. And it wasn't even necessarily a verbal connection I had, but I was like, oh yeah, there's a real kind of, you know, there's something very substantial in that. So yeah, it was, it was fantastic in its way. Yeah. And so when Gold Teeth Thief dropped, there was like a bit of a delay and then it blew up sort of for you it was unexpected right yes yeah because and it was unexpected because you know i'm like i've been doing this mixing for like two or three years now and 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 it had only reached our sort of little crew of people in Toneburst, like boston area maybe one or two shows in new york city but that was it and i only put it online so i was like oh i want because i was writing to the people's records i used and like hey i love your music here's a mix i did you can check it out yeah, and like I, I was in Madrid, I didn't really have much, like I didn't have internet access at home. And so it's this weird thing where at some point, like a friend calls me up and he's like, yo, Wire Magazine gave you this great review. And I was like, wow, that's like totally unprecedented, <laughs> you know? Um, and then it just kind of kept coming. And the person who'd put up the MP3s for me, he's like, there's actually like an enormous amount of traffic coming as a result of this. Um, so yeah, a very happy surprise. And then when that came out and you started getting booked it was a bit of a windfall of like international gigs and Mm -hmm. i imagine were you playing kind of like informal and community oriented spaces like the ones you had kind of created in boston Hmm. from the start it was actually a weird mix which like thankfully i've maintained you know like the very first sort of international gig was playing one of the former spaces of club maria in berlin you know and it's a choreographer who heard the mix and like really loved it but he was like really busy that night so he booked me but then he like passed me off to his friend who was like incredibly rude and i had this horrible experience like being dropped off at mcdonald's near the venue and i was like what is this but then playing a sort of you know really nice club and then having kind of um all these people come out so but yeah it's and partly maybe because of the time like sometimes it, people would understand me like in a hip-hop or like straight up kind of like oh like caribbean influence like club music context and i'd be in those sort of nights or um and sometimes people would kind of be a little more like we're in have this weird squat and this person plays with noise music so let's invite him so i was kind of yeah lucky to be able to get booked at all these different spaces and then after boston and between new york you ended up in barcelona right? yeah and uh, in your book, you you talk about this kind of insane temporary autonomous zone <laughs> squat. Yes. Uh, can you? Oh, what's yeah. that called? Can yeah. You? Oh, that, that that space was called La Macabra, um, and there are others. I mean, but yeah, it was it was amazing. It was the size of like half a city block in what in the Poblenou district, sort of a industrial kind of warehousey district, which is of course going a horrible, horribly violent like rezoning and rebuilding right now. But it was one of these wonderful examples that you stumble across in Europe from time to time. It's like of being like, oh, it's a big squat, but they're organized. Like they had a library, they hired a lawyer, they had childcare set up. And, you know, definitely some people like living very close to the edge there, but then being like very, like very much in that tradition of like Barcelona, Catalan anarchist activism. And so we did a, like Philistine and I, uh, an American producer who just moved to the city, we did a party that was one euro, kind of during sonar times, we were piggybacking off of that, but like we had squatters up on the hills who'd made their own homebrew, like selling their beer. And like, even though it was only one euro, there are people outside who are like, man, I'm not going to pay one euro to go to a party in this spot. <laughs> it was one of those very incredible moments where you're like, okay, autonomous culture can happen and can happen on a serious sixth scale, you know? That's so interesting. I feel like I've heard all these stories about how, you know, in places like Copenhagen or or Scandinavia Mm. in general, where there are more like social services for providing government money for music, then you actually get like really radical shit happening in what would be kind of like a rinky dinky community space in the United States, Mm -hmm. you know? So like, Yeah. yeah, it's just cool that the money exists for that. Yeah. And this was, I mean, it was, had nothing to do with the government, you know, an antagonistic relationship with City Hall for sure. So then you moved to New York. Yeah. In your book, you wrote about how that hurt your bank account a bit <laughs> as a DJ. Yes, so true. Yeah, I mean, yeah, what was it? It was like 800 euros in the Barcelona for this amazing apartment, like 
three bedrooms, multiple balconies overlooking the Mediterranean. And then suddenly it's like, oh, one room in a shared loft like next to the JMZ. Like I opened the window and the train's right there. I mean, I love Spain. I love Madrid and Barcelona. Um, but at the time it was such a, it was so depressing to see a city um, like refocus itself so hard around like service economy tourist industry um, and how like sort of the kind of like a Catalan protectionism made it really difficult for, even for people from other parts of Spain to to do progressive culture. It was good to move back to New York City, <laughs> as complicated as that is, as complicated as life in New York City is. Right. Well, I mean, that's when when Dutty Arts began, which I think of as like a quintessential New York oh, that's great. mix of influences <laughs> that could happen nowhere else. Yes. You know? Yeah, definitely. And so, and the context for that was like Matt Shadetech and I, um, you know, like born in, Matt's born and raised in New York City, but he'd been living in uh, Berlin for a while. And so we kind of, we met in New York City, but we were both in Europe at the same time. So like every time I'd go to Berlin to do a show or whatever, I'd hang out with Matt. We became good friends. And then, so yeah, around 2006, 2007, I guess we were both back here. And, you know, we just get together and like make beats and it was fun and hanging out. And Matt had a know had like incredible amounts of music and so at some point we were just like i was like why don't we just have some sort of platform where we can release matt's music and work on some things together yeah and then he suggested duddy arts as a name a few months later and we're like okay perfect let's do it um and it all kind of emerged from that that comes from like the patois dati yeah i think it's from it even be like a capleton song dati arts i forget yeah, i think it's a capleton song and so before we get back to duddy arts i want to talk about our man Matt Shade Attack. Yeah. And one of the stories that you tell in Uproot is the story of Brooklyn Anthem, which is a kind of an interesting roundabout way that it arrived to being the cultural phenomenon that it is. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, Brooklyn Anthem is, um, you know, Matt and his production partner Zach at the time um, were Team Shade Tech, and they made this. I mean, yeah, Matt had made a beat for a mixtape, called it Brooklyn Anthem, and like put on a Sizzla acapella or something in this mixtape, and people loved it. And so he decided to turn it into a proper vocal track. Um, and then eventually they got Jadam Blackamore and Two Sevens Clash, like sort of uh, friends of ours in New York City, um, really great vocalist, uh, Guyanese and Jamaican respectively, to voice it. And then that ended up getting picked up for this Madden football video game. Um, and then because of the video game, somehow it reached the sort of like East Brooklyn Caribbean dance crews and they love the song. So they hunted down the instrumental version. And then this crew called Island Superior Sound um, did a really great sort of like, you know, youth party uh, in bed -Stuy. They did an amazing refix of it. Like they threw on Movado edits and Elephant Man, um, chopped it up, put in their own branding. And then that thing went viral. And so maybe like a month or two after this had happened, it finally reached Matt that this was going on. Like they didn't even know about it because there's such of a crazy sort of, you know, meme Xerox cut and paste distance between it. But then we're like, what? He's looking at like hundreds of dance cell phone dance videos going on. Like it was a whole sensation. Super interesting. But it's like a wacky grime beat. Yes, and exactly. And it's a wacky grind beat. It's like 140 BPM, totally distorted kick drums, matte shade text, sort of like trademark kind of jostling uh, hand claps. Uh, yeah. And very, so adrenaline, like sort of knucklehead party music at its finest. Cantankerous. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so obviously Jamaican music has been like at the core almost of a lot of what you do. Mm -hmm. What drew you to Jamaican music in the first place? Yeah, I mean, it's that, let's see, I guess it was dub stuff in high school I was probably really getting into dub production and so that was that first thing you're like oh okay you've been listening to songs your whole life then all of a sudden you get these you get these people who are doing magic by taking away parts by subtracting you're like oh it doesn't have to be an additive process you know you can start with something full reduce it and that's your production so that was just like you know mind exploding um plus the music was so magical then I started getting into of course like all the dance hall which is super interesting at the time you know in Boston I would go around to um I'd like it take me like three buses to get from where I was living to get to Blue Hill Ave in Dorchester but once I was there you know it's like three really great reggae shops where you could just go and ask people to listen to sevens and every week there'd be new stuff and a little bit some roots but then mostly like contemporary electronic dance hall and then that was I mean the dub it's kind of like you know it's classic easy listening in a sense uh but like 
current dance hall is so interesting because it occupies that sweet spot between there. It's like, this is populist music. People are trying to fill dance halls or trying to like, crush the competition. Um, but it's populist music that loves novelty. And that drives all sorts of wacky studio experimentation, lyrical experimentation, like silliness, brilliance. And it's kind of all bound up together. But it's not like trying to be esoteric for the sake of esoteric or... Ex- wacky for exactly. the sake of a gimmick. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's always this awareness of a kind of a social context and there's a, there's a sort of a greater point to it as loopy and far out as it gets, which is often really far out. Yeah. Um, have you been to Jamaica and done sort of the circuit of recording with vocalists, visiting historic music sites? Oh. <laughs> you know, there's like the yeah. tour that you do as yeah. an outsider musician. Yeah, no, I haven't done that tour. That's funny. What have we ended Once we ended up at, um, like... Like Lee Perry's brother is is around, and he and so he's like, yeah, this is where he burned down the studio. You know, it's like a room with a bunch of ash. You're like, okay, but that that was the extent of our. <laughs> I mean, I was there with uh, staying with the Congos, who are you know, sort of roots reggae icon legends. Um, but I'm n- not one of those people who's like, I don't own any Bob Marley records. You know, actually, I I feel like moments of musical history is sort of interesting, but then maybe it's not. Maybe I'm not so interested. in to get back to Daddy Arts, I was wondering if you could play us something that you think really exemplified like the early catalog. <laughs> Here we go. Absolutely. Um, this this song, I think we must have produced it. It's a Matt Shade Tech and I in production. And we, I think it's 2009. And this is this funny story. You know, it's like, I mean, we would get together. It's actually kind of ridiculous. Like Matt's a very fast producer. He's like an incredibly fast media builder. You know, it's like 30, 30 seconds, 30 minutes, the song is there. And so we'd hang out and, you know, do a session and have a bunch of sketches. Um, and this was one sketch that we then took and kind of kept alive. And eventually we ended up putting up two vocalists on top of it. Aku and then Jadan Blackamore as well. So that was during peak dubstep, or just prior to peak dubstep? <laughs> that was just prior to peak dubstep. Yeah, that whole Jodan project, we're like, yeah, we're kind of interested in all this dubstep, and it hadn't, you know, and it was still kind of vital in a sense, and we're like, let's do like vocal dubstep. Uh, and so we are probably like, you know, 20 months too soon or something, right. and a bit too disorganized, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a great time in music. Mm-hmm. It's funny to be talking about it in the past tense. It's like, <laughs> it seemed to yeah. peak and then go away so quickly. Yeah, gone. One thing I'm interested in talking about is sampling versus collaboration. Mm. And I think, you know, what's a lot of what what you and Matt contributed was rather than staying behind the window you are crossing and just going that extra step to be like, maybe we can contact this person. Maybe they're down to work with us, you know? So, I mean, is that a big part of your project, just making contact? Um, 
Yeah, absolutely. And so like in our early conversations, Matt and I, we'd always be like, yeah, we're like we're both after having been sort of away from the cultural richness of New York City. I mean, in, in Barcelona, I was working with a amazing rock and musicians, you know, but, but suddenly we're like, we're back in New York City. Like there are all these people around, you know, like we're hugely into like rap and reggae and all this stuff. Um, you know, like meeting up with Gecko Jones, this whole sort of like Latin line it opened up. We're like, yeah, like it, it would be it's like something about the overcrowded nature of the city. You're always kind of like bumping into someone, rubbing up against someone. So this idea of like, well, that's an opportunity to, to, to speak up and create a link and spark something. So, yeah. Yeah, I remember there's a, a part of the book where you're talking about how you begin to feel a little bit uncomfortable with Raga Jungle mm-hmm. and how the voice of the Jamaican man in Raga Jungle was playing out this kind of racial fantasy of like aggression and attitude. And I think that made you think about sampling and, exotic in general Mm -hmm. you know yeah i think what you said was naive at best creepily segregationist (laughs) at worst yes can you talk a little bit more about that realization yeah yeah and it kind of goes from you know of course like listening to all this reggae stuff and then yeah and then like mid to late 90s like there's this really exciting music that at the time you know like raga jungle which is reaching back and sort of like recontextualizing all these pizzas of Jamaican music in a way that felt um, very organic, you know, and oftentimes it's sort of like London sound systems with like direct relationships with Jamaica and Kingston, um, even like sort of like legacies, like this person's father ran a sound system. Um, was from, but and so that was <clears throat> that was good and fine. And then I guess when I'm not sure when it first started happening, but it's almost like the a lot of people were excited by Raga Jungle, and so the the shock, the initial explosion happens in London um, in a very specific way, and then all of a sudden you get people all over. The, all over the world who are just like oh yeah I'll, like you take like like baritone vocal saying something aggressive and like add it to a distorted amen break and then voila you know suddenly you've got a slamming break core track or something um and so it's almost like sometimes you can just see a cliche in music you're like what's that cliche supporting you know and that cliche is like capleton saying murder them or something you're just like oh man this is so so lame ultimately okay so you've always been interested in working with music from afar and like you know a lot of stuff in Jamaica, Argentina, uh, Morocco and a lot of what you've been involved with could kind of fly under the banner of world music Mm -hmm. and I'm wondering what you think about the usefulness of that term in 2016. (laughs) Yes yeah that's this distinction I make in the book I'm like yeah world music is should be any music with global reach you know it's like Rihanna's world music, U2 is world music, Taylor Swift is world music, um, national anthems are world music Uh, but you know, world music as such was like literally a top-down industry term, you know, so like in the wake of Paul Simon's success with Graceland, people and like a bunch of music industry execs in Britain and London sat around and like, we need to market this stuff. People want it. What can we call it? Can we call it hot, tropical? They had all these like sort of names and world music was the one they decided on. And so it's useful in that very specific way. Like the language they use, they're like, we need a record store bin that we can put this stuff into. And then world music was that, you know, it's like in sort of an economic category as much as anything else. And then for all this new wave of things going on, sort of more ground up grassroots production, people using inexpensive software to make weird music that references wherever they're living. You know, I like to call out of the various terms that people propose for that. I like world music 2.0 because it gets some idea of the sprawl, some idea of this sort of of the digital layer wrapping around it and confusing the very idea of what a, what a world is. Yeah, I mean, but the thing is, ultimately, it's like one you know, over time, that's just going to sort of disintegrate even as a thought, you know, I think there's, I mean, it's interesting how people listen, you know, like the usefulness of the idea of like a locale, you know, or thinking of a far, like, what does a far mean? If you're like, people as we become more and more accustomed to like, oh, yeah, you know, like, like Korean pop, it's like not, not too much of a big deal, you know, or this, this, you know, or like, yes, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. It's interesting. So speaking of local music cultures. In your book, you take us to a few different locales and it's kind of weaves through these first person anecdotes of your experiences meeting and making music with and interviewing musicians. Um, and one of the places you take us is Monterrey, Mexico, mm-hmm. where we meet some of the people involved with a style of music called tribal. And I was wondering if you could tell us, set the scene for us in Monterrey so we can understand. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was amazing because, um, I was just there DJing actually a really fun party with like, um, Pablo Lascano's Damas band from Argentina, like Cumbia Vigera, Damas Gratis. And so all, but 
as part of that weekend of DJing, uh, my friend Toy Selecta, shout out to Toy, he's like, hey, you know, he's like, there's this all ages rave going on Sunday. You should like hang around for a couple of days and we should check it out. And I'd heard like r- heard rumor of like Tribal, Tribal Guadachero before that. But then everything I could reference online was, was, was just bad. You know, you're like, OK, this is this is great in theory in, in practice. It's like some very repetitive fruity loops or just like European tribal trance or whatever. But then I was like, of course, like a rave, like all ages afternoon rave in downtown Monterrey. Like, yes. Um, and so we went and it was it was wild, you know, out of out of I was probably one of the most surprising musical experiences of my life, you know, because like three to four thousand kids partying in this gigantic warehouse space. And the music and the music, it's not what we think of as like the sort of like the, you know, Tribal Monterrey. They've had their album. They've done this. But the music was uh so far advanced from what had happened online, you know? So, like, all these amazing triplets, the clip-clopping drum loops, kids integrating this kind of this Aztec imaginary, you know, via, like, sort of reimagining, reconfiguring sort of, like, pre-Columbian instrumentation, all these cumbia samples. Um, actually, classic dance hall samples are really popular that day. Uh, all of this was going on, like, that a dance crew, Harry Potter Ridges, it was just overload, total full-on Mexican overload, um, and also in a very kind of, like, sweaty, healthy environment. And then at 8 p.m. sharp, like, uh, a cumbia band starts playing, and, like, everyone just keeps dancing. They switch up their dance style, but the whole thing just keeps on going, even though it's suddenly a 10-person cumbia band doing their thing. And so that was just like, wow, you know? And I was like, this is, this is um, unprecedented and amazing. Yeah. I, I guess that's a kind of what we're all in search of is these mm-hmm. weird open moments where anything mm-hmm. goes and it's not locked down mm-hmm. or codified, which yep. sounds like what you were talking about with the, what you were trying to open up in Boston, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Can we play oh, sure. some Triba? Why did you pick that tune? So that was Eric Rincon. So he was one of the DJs, you know, like 16 years when I first met him there, playing that first time I walked in it. But then so much of his the material he and the others were DJing were their own edits. And so that is, um, it's Los Reyes Vallenatos um, de Javier Lopez. So that's like, in the middle of it, he samples uh, like a Monterrey cumbia band, and they're versioning a very popular sort of Mexican cumbia song. But then, of course, they've modified the lyrics, talk about Nueva León, the state where Monterrey is from. And then it's this whole moment we get to hear in sound how he's kind of negotiating this, this embrace of like, yes, I like this cumbia stuff, but then it's all sped up and folded up into these crazy new beat patterns, you know, that um, that Eric and his buddies are developing. So you also have a chapter about autotune, mm-hmm. which is a fairly divisive technology. <laughs> Not everyone loves it. Can you talk about how that brought you to Morocco? Sure. It started way back, way back before T-Pain in like 2001, 2002, where I'd just be like, you know, call them like bars for drunk Muslims in, in Barcelona. So like red light district, sort of like Moroccan bars and they're playing music with this crazy vocal effect um, really strongly and this was before I or most people knew to call it autotune but I was just like what is what's going on with this stuff and I loved it I mean I, I was sort of instantly 
liked autotune and just found it just so fascinating. But then I started buying the stuff and I was just like, okay, this is really interesting. And then, you know, two or three years later, it kind of hit sort of like American R&B mainstream, you know, with T-Pain and other people. Um, and then people started talking about it. And it was just always stayed in my mind. I was like, well, all this very odd music I was hearing with Morocco, that was using the same tech. I was like, well, how come it became popular there? Um, and so popular so early on. So in a way, it was just kind of answering this basic question. And although I had a lot of Moroccan musician friends in Barcelona, no one there could really, and then they're like, yeah, well, actually, a lot of this stuff you li- like with a heavy auto tune that you like is Berber, you know? And they're like, yeah, I can speak some Berber, but I don't really know what's going on with that scene. And so at some point, I was just like, I need to go there and just start asking questions. So in a way, the chapter, it is, of course, yeah, it's thinking about what is this, you know, this technology that has its roots in oil extraction code algorithms you know people light these set off explosions in the earth listen to it with an array of microphones throw all this math at it to find out where you know where the minerals or where the petrochemicals are and one of the people who was best at that started up antares and then that led directly to um Autotune, Dr. Andy Hildebrand. So yeah, so let's think about the very unusual spread of this technology, which is far from totalizing. But then specifically, I'm like, well, let's go deep and look at how it ends up in sort of like conservative Berber wedding music, how it ends up there early and then stays there. Yeah. And I remember you were trying to track down a singer that Mm. you were a fan of. Mm -hmm. And then when you finally found her, I think her husband preferred that she didn't do an interview. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. This woman, Hafida. And she was totally amazing. She was, you know, the exception to the rule. She was a uh, sort of like Arab Moroccan, a non-Berber, but who was somehow, who had learned, uh, Tamazir learned the language and was singing in it and became this kind of star in s- South Moroccan wedding music. Um, put out a, like, and it's great. It's like kind of just spectacular. And at some point her husband was like, you know, your music career is over. You know, he's like, you're your wife now. Like it must silence, like no more interviews, nothing. Um, so that the sort of double, yeah, multiple tragedies of that. I'd like to talk about your project Nettle. Mm. So that was like, a, I think like a five piece band that had some kind of like chamber orchestra string instrumentation with you providing software. And you guys put out an album that sort of had a concept. And I was wondering if you could tell us about that. <laughs> Let's talk about your concept album. <laughs> yeah, so Nettle started like living in Barcelona. I'm like, okay, it's instead of sampling Arabic music, like why don't I start talking t- and find a really amazing rock and violinist? Um, man, that worked, Abdel Hakrahal, and I slowly grew the project. And the last sort of big thing we did was this idea of thinking about the movie The Shining and thinking about Dubai, where I DJed a handful of times. And this was actually Jeff Minogue, a really great architecture writer and thinker he was like he was like oh yeah you could you could set the shining in dubai you know and some like some caretakers on a you know he has to take care of this hotel but the hotel is empty you know and i was like i was like that's it i was like that's what the album's going to be like the, a soundtrack to a remake of the shining set in a luxury hotel in dubai you know and the air conditions brokening and all of this and so that was kind of thinking about like what does it mean to have ghosts you know in a city that's only 30 years old you know these sort of like null spaces of capital the null spaces of the desert um the spaces where improbable things can bloom like let's make this kind of like haunted dislocated music and it's kind of really in vibing with a lot of the themes with nettle anyhow you know and i was just like oh okay pulling together all these musicians in barcelona you know we all speak we, together we speak Spanish. It's no one's first language, you know, and I'm tr- thinking about ideas of friction and like, let's make a musical space where we're all equally uncomfortable. Not this thing where we're like, oh, everyone's gonna be happy. And they're like, no, like let's have moments of failed translation and sort of systems of meaning breaking down and have that embedded into the music. What was it like to establish a working dynamic between electronic instruments and organic instruments? Like, <laughs> is there usually one in control or did, was there some growing time to figure it out? Yeah, lots of growing time. I mean, part of it was me quickly learning the limitations of the software. And my listening default is like, oh, yeah, like a 4-4 rhythm is a sort of straightforward rhythm. You know, like a like basic hip-hop beat, 4-4, 90 BPM. And so the very first day I was working with my friend Abdel, this Moroccan violinist, I played him one of these beats. I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to get some strings on top of this, like, simple beat. And then he was just, he was very much used to much more... Um, 
I guess, rhythmically complex or much more supple. There are many different ways of describing it, but his sort of standard simple beat was very different from what I had in mind. And so he actually found it quite awkward to play on top of what I perceived as something that was very basic. And then he left and I was like, oh, weird. I'm like, he's sort of playing out of time. It's not really clicking, but he's obviously a good musician. I tried cutting it up and I played that to him. He just started laughing, you know, because he, he was like, I was, you know, like rewriting his cadence. And so from there on, I was like, whoa, you know, this is actually, it's, it's almost beyond the tools. It's this ideas of like very basic ideas of listening and like how to, how to pauses and silence and polyrhythms work in all this music. Which sort of led you to the Sufi plugins. Exactly. Um, yeah. How do the Sufi plugins work? Can you tell so, us about yeah, that? Yeah, Sufi plugins. It's uh, doing all this work with Moroccans. I was always like, oh, if only I had like a synth or a plugin, I could do that. It would be so much faster than some elaborate workaround. And then at some point, um, you know, the software Ableton Live like opened up Max MSP inside it, you know, so it's like with as Max for Live. And then I was like, oh, this is an interesting moment because you can, a Max MSP is a really flexible coding platform. And so you can just do all these things in it that you kind of can't do. So, you know, you can write plugins that have very strange functionality. And so once that was in the world, um, I somehow randomly in my radio show, I met this programmer, a coder and percussionist named Bill Bowen. And I was like, hey, would you be able to do like X, Y, and Z? And he's like, yeah, no problem. And so like once I knew that those things were possible, I'm like, okay, I want to put together. The first impulse was I'm going to make tools that I can use in Nettle, you know, so synthesizers hardwired to North African scales, um, sort of like interesting drum machines based around ideas of clapping, like all this stuff. And then as the project went on and I realized just how labor intensive it is to like make music software, um, it occurred to me, I was like, you know, I, if I make this public facing, if I give it a nice skin and an interesting interface, I can turn it into something bigger than just a tool for me. It can turn into this sort of, you know, art music software project. And so actually I was in Morocco at the time and I went and I got, I made this kind of incredible um, glossary of electronic music terms, you know, like a reverb, uh, like quantization, granular synthesis, translated into French and then into Berber. Um, and not only in Berber, but this beautiful 2,000-year-old um, script called Neotifinar that they use, which looks kind of like, say, like a sci-fi um, Korean or something. But anyhow, so then I worked with the designer, this guy, Rostam Wu, to make really beautiful interfaces. There's no English on them. Everything is clearly labeled, but just in this Berber script. It should make sense if you're used to working with synthesizers to some extent, but very immediately cryptic. I was like, well, let's turn the tables on software design. It's not going to default to English. And if you hover the mouse over a button or a knob or a fader, a tooltip will pop up. But instead of saying something sort of literal, you know, like volume or distortion amount, um, it's a fragment of Sufi poetry, you know, from 13th century Persia on down to today. And there's, there's several Macalm synthesizers, clapping machine, a drone machine that can also filter. <clears throat> And then at some point I want to take it even further and there's a device called Devotion. And so with Devotion, you just set where you are in a, on a map of the world and then you set your belief level, you know, ob observant, agnostic, fervent, apostate, devout. You know, atheism is not an option. And the idea there is that five times a day out of, the, out of respect for the Muslim call to prayer, it'll lower the volume of, uh, of your computer for about two or three minutes. And the amount that's lowered by depends on your belief level. So I, you know, made a demonstration video, put them online for free. And less than 24 hours later, um, this guy, uh, Hassan Huajiri, I believe, so a Bahraini composer, sent me this piece. So it's kind of like a synth noise piece. And so it was amazing, though, because he is like like a serious music head. So he understood the sort of um, the scales, the Macam scales I was using. He chose his favorite one, but then he went to a park, took a photograph of a stray cat, use that photograph to generate MIDI data somehow, like note information, and then push that through the synthesizer. So he's got these, he's got like manifestos on post-esoteric Arabic music, super interesting. Um, so yeah, the very first track was probably, I guess like you could call it you know, Bahraini noise. But then, you know, Priest from Anti-Pop was the first person to put it on vinyl. He made, it, he made a track using the, the clapping drum machine. So yeah, there's a lot out there. So I'm interested, a lot of what we're talking about here is sort of the intermediaries who filter the distribution of music and culture. Mm -hmm. And one really interesting case you talked about was Omar Suleiman, who is a Syrian wedding singer who wasn't exactly a superstar in the local context, but then was sort of cherry-picked and turned into an indie star. And I was wondering if you could talk about your take on that. Yeah, Omar Suleiman. It's so funny because I knew about that music before he got big. I'm like, yeah, it's 
Debka, it's like, it's huge in the Levant, like anywhere you go and it's like a big part of the world. And like, that's the music. Um, but then <clears throat> his popularity is so, I guess I see it as a lost opportunity for people to know more about Debka music. Cause there's a lot of really interesting stuff, you know, like there's multiple bands in Brooklyn who play this stuff. Like it's really easy to go and not hard to find like super interesting, like much more interesting than he's doing. Like people who are, who are actually like widely known and influential and like doing progressive things and like all this crazy stuff is going on. And yet like having some seen him in Europe, I'm like, oh, it's actually just like he's presented as this sort of like unique individual, like zero cultural context, even given all the craziness going on in Syria. And not only that, there's somehow, there's like a very awkward, I was there on his first European tour, actually interviewed him. And it was, I was just like, this is, it just felt really problematic. There's such a huge gulf, when there's such a large gulf between the audience and the person on stage. And then ordinarily he just dresses kind of regular, but then he kind of goes into this whole, it's almost, it's less seeing him on stage than seeing people's reaction to it. You know, they're like, oh yes, it's like this weird, I feel like a lot of fantasies were singing around the room. And as a result of that, a lot of good music and interesting musical stories weren't being told. Yeah. And I think the other one you talked about was Konono Number no. One, mm -hmm. which is Congolese yes. band. Yeah, I mean, it's a similar. It's a similar story, right? It like, is a similar story. Um, but although, I mean, the differences. Konono was so intriguing because what is it? Like pre YouTube, they're buzzing around. You know, I was like, oh yes, it's like it's African music, but it sounds like Sonic Youth. It sounds like experimental guitar, and you'd like try and find a clip, and it was really difficult. But it's just very funny. You know, they were on an LP of like a French. Okora, state-sponsored French ethnographic music label in 87, and like, it sounds the exact same, like nobody really cares, you know, because then the sort of classical world music connoisseur audience was like, what is this stuff? But in a way, the liner notes were very much in tune with now. They're like, look at what they're doing with such, with such, like, such busted up equipment. So, this, so that it turns to this, this sort of weird story about like poverty, like the resourcefulness of poverty, plus the like libidinal flourish of distortion, and then you get this cool music. Um, and it is cool music. But my friends, this band, The X, like the very first person to bring them to Europe was like, oh, I, you know, he'd heard the recordings, was like, what a great sensibility. Let's put them with someone who kind of, you know, not only is The X moving in this really interesting sort of African direction in their own sort of like rhythmic groove-based playing, but they are like, they use distortion in really interesting ways. Um, and so they played a bunch of shows together. You know, like Conan O'Trash, my friend Andy Moore's amp, because they would just turn it up all the time. Um, but then I was, when I was thinking about that, I'm like, oh, you kind of do need to talk about like all that's, all that's at play here. But then the thing that really struck me in the end was the fact that the majority of the band had just slipped away into Europe by the end of the tour. You wow. know, pe people are like, it's actually, you know, like that's how the band goes. Maybe like there's 12 or 13 people and at the end there were three. And I was like, you know, so in a way I'm like, of course I'm talking about the music and how it travels and like the way in which the sort of narratives of meaning wrap around it. And then I was like, but here's a story about Conan which hasn't been told and is actually somehow very, to me, very integrated with the music. Um, like this sort of decision for invisibility and silence. And then of course I, yeah. I often think about that Charanjit Singh, Ten Ragas to a Disco Beat mm, in yeah. 1983. Yeah. And it's a great album, but a lot of what's being sold is this backstory and the novelty, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, like, as someone who's often an intermediary, who often has a foot in two worlds, like, what do you keep in mind in terms of, like, trying to go about this in a way that you're taking care of the people mm. who are working with you? Yeah. Ideas like actually trying to get a handle for what's going on while acknowledging your own outsider status is, is really important, you know? And so with, with like the Tribal Guarachero stuff, I'm like, here I am, like Toy and I were the first people to like, who aren't kids who are super into it just to like, to kind of check out this scene. And he'd done his homework and had been emailing and in touch with everyone and knew it was happening. But I was like, oh, here's this opportunity to like, and like, you know, sort of like no media, not even serious, like Mexican media has covered this. And I was like, well, how do I approach that in a way which is, um, yeah, respectful and not goofy. And so it's kind of like you sit down, you talk to the musicians about what matters to them, you know? And then, of course, trying to think about it and position it more broadly. But uh, I think so much of the, like, the, the writing on Konano and Omar, it's just, I mean, there's a larger impulse to be like, okay, this is like the pop star feature formula. This is the person who's on the rise. Look at their idiosyncratic brilliance, X, Y, Z. Now they're going to do some big thing. Here we go. You know, search engine optimization for the title and you're good to go. And that's rarely like the right story. 
you know, so with the Tootie Ball stuff, I'm like, well, we actually need to talk about like Israeli psychedelic techno and how that was big in Northern Mexico rave scene. We need to talk about Cumbia because that's so present. And we need to talk about YouTube and the software they're using because that has its own warping on the sound. And the drug stuff, the narco stuff is sort of in the background, but then also present in terms of the social spaces. So it's trying to give, um, you know, trying to voice the, the social complexity around anything um, and not turn the musician into a sort of cartoon. Yeah, I was going to ask you, do you ever feel like wary of the kind of flavor of the week thing? Because mm. I know we were talking about Tribal and we were talking about dubstep and all of these things. Yeah peaked and then had these moments of media hype and then have disappeared and i wonder if you think there's a way of trying to make things more sustainable yeah i mean i think about that a lot you know and in a very simple level you know like you could say oh cumbia people say like new cumbia electro cumbia whatever like that had its peak in 2010 or something but even from the beginning i was like you know what's interesting in cumbia is the cumbia sonideros who just keep on going you know so the guy i read about in the book this will this will be his 20th year doing cumbia sonidero parties. This is like this is like old school cumbia, not like digitally. No, totally, totally digital. I mean, he plays a wide variety, but yeah, you know, he's laptop DJing. So all sorts from like brand new productions that people give him, like all synthy to classics to whatever. Um, but the whole talk over the whole culture of cumbia is around it. But it's not at all about newness, you know. And so, so part of that for me as a writer, it involves and as a DJ, it's like. If you don't like flavor of the week, then like linger with things, you know, then like return to things you love, then find things or even questions which are basic enough to sort of support that slowness, like slow digestion. And even when writing about like an album, I'm like, you know, this like a good media outlet was like, I was on tour, but they're like, yeah, we, we would love, you know, 800 words on like the new Kanye West video, like by 48 hours from now, because they need it fast. And I was like, that's kind of not how any of this should work, you know? Um, yeah. And with music, there's always more, there's always more interesting questions. I remember you talking about your kind of vexed relationship to Red Bull. <laughs> um, on one hand, you're hitting them up for funding. Yep. And on the other hand... There was an anecdote about you had something of an altercation on stage. Can you talk about that? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, yeah, this is a chapter in the book. I'm like, you know, for the most part, I'm, I'm looking at yeah, musical culture in a way, but like it would be incomplete without addressing stuff like this, like Red Bull's presence. Um, and so that was actually a really fun one to write because I'm like, oh, how can I sort of give voice to this sort of complicit complexity? You know, so I talk about, in retrospect, hilarious moment in Spain. I was playing at a big Spanish festival in Pontevedra. And this was kind of, I guess, Red Bull was more like less suave with their marketing at the time. So the DJ booth was built into this ridiculous sort of like fascistic constructivist platform with all these sharp like gunmetal edges um, glowing in the middle of the stage. And I was like, this is awful. And, I, and like they hadn't told me, it wasn't there for sound check. And then I walk out and I try to unplug it, but then everything is plugged into it. It's like literally like glowing Red Bull logo. It looks like a El Escorio like the sort of fascist monument in, in outside of Madrid for the, but that's an aside. So I was like, this is terrible. And I was like, what can I do? And I was like, okay, I can take off my jacket and drape it over this thing because I can't turn it off and because I'm going on. Um, and so I do that and I start to play. And then this like, you know, guy in a suit comes over and he like taps me on the shoulder and he's like, sorry, you like, you really need to take your jacket off that. They need to see it. And then I had, we had this kind of fight on stage. And I was like, no, I'm not going to do it. You know, and he's like, well, they're going to pull the plug on you. I was like, we'll do it. Fine. In the end, they, I kept on playing. My jacket stayed on. Everyone in the audience was like fully aware of what was happening <laughs> because I wasn't DJing during this time. And it was just, I was like, yeah, it was a very intense experience, actually. Yeah. And then so I'm like, well, that, you know, 2002, but then fast forward to much later on where it's a much more well-oiled machine. Everyone, all sorts of people were like, you should try and get Sufi plugins funding from Red Bull. You know, like I'd try and get some art grants for it that wasn't really working out. And I was like, I want to make free software based on non-Western, like, ideas about sound, like, you know, in Cairo, and people are like, no one's going to give you money, except maybe Red Bull, they might be into it. And of course, that didn't work either. But by sort of laying all my cards on the table, talking about playing that, like a funny Telefonica gig in Peru as well, um, talk about these weird moments when like corporate money touches me, you know, or sidesteps me as the case may be, was it was like the only way I think I could deal with any, like dealing with any of that, like how money, how advertising, um, how branded events come to our musical culture because it's getting deeper and deeper and deeper as we go on. And I feel like the days of being like, this is this ethical line I'm not going to cross. It's like totally kind of fan fantastical at this point. That's exactly what I wanted to ask you about. 
I was interviewing someone else and he was saying, you know, 15 years ago, if one of my friends had taken this Red Bull money, I would have been like, dude, what are you doing? Like, that is so uncool. <laughs> but now the cultural climate has shifted where I don't, maybe the money doesn't exist elsewhere, but it's become a lot more permissible, you know, and mm -hmm. there isn't the antagonism of the selling out, mm -hmm. you know. Do you think the pendulum has kind of swung too far? Like, do you think we're too permissive of that? Should we be more? Like well, it's, I guess the thing I want to see more of, I'm just like, how come more artists aren't, how can I phrase it? Like, are so quick to metabolize inside those structures. You know, it's like, like you rush to play the museum gig. You rush to uh, sign up for Red Bull Music Academy, you know, which is effectively like you're giving your marketing information to this global company. But like people will sort of like you rush to give away your free mix to such and such website. And so in a way, I'm like, how come the emphasis on any type of visibility is so prominent right now? Like, what about more like subterfuge? What about more... Um, you know, it's not just having like weird hashtags in your name or characters that can't, but like, what about having like meaning that exists outside of, of its documentation? Like, that's just kind of an interesting thing that I'm like, it's in a way it's a huge open space. So I'm like, how come more people aren't doing interesting things in that open space? Like you can do whatever you want with whatever horrible energy drink you want, you know, like I'm kind of, but I'm more curious. I'm like, I kind of want to find those people or want to inspire those people. So I was listening to your interview with Shy Boy on the okay. uh, MoMA podcast, and you asked her if you think that the New York kind of music and nightlife scene has become like sanitized or gentrified. And I want to ask you the same question: Like, are you <laughs> are you pessimistic, or what do you feel? You know, I, I have this like it's totally I have this like stupid optimism in music. Like everything else outside of music, you know, it's like in twenty years we'll be fighting over water. It's going to be horrible. But I'm like, you know, music. It's, music's gonna do all right you know because like instability like that in a way that leads to better music like stability that also leads to but you kind of can't go wrong you know it's like it's like investing in wall street or something it's like there's you can't beat the machine but um so what that means in new york city is it's kind of actually back to the things i was just saying like there's I don't tell anybody. There's like a musical thing that I go to every week, like religiously, and I just don't tell anybody about it because about it, it's like very small. It's not really a thing, but I'm like, this is so moving and meaningful. Like, this is my thing. And so I'm like, this is great. This, this, it's, it's a secret. And so much of like, maybe, maybe it just reverts to house parties and that's, that's where it's at. You know, like as, you're, as the neighborhood drives up, as like the huge venues swoop down, you know, I think that there's always going to be, I guess a part of me sits back and I was like, yeah, I would like come down from Boston in like, you know, late 90s and like go to these crazy DJ parties. And it was so wonderful because it wasn't about dancing. Um, it wasn't about that type of CNBC visibility. It was like really people just doing weird stuff with records in a small, like smoke filled room. Like that was New York back then. Um, and I was like, that feels so far gone. It's like now the sort of like, it's almost like a, the, the DJ monoculture is that people should dance, you know? And I was like, wow. And also in the late nineties, partly because of venues like tonic, I'm like, there's so much more interaction between DJ culture and like improv, different types of like improv experimental avant-garde music. And then now you get the stone, which is kind of snobby and like, like we have no PA, you know, you're just like, ah, oh. so there are certain moments that are more conducive to things. But also the flip side of that is it doesn't take much to make something happen in New York City. If you're just trying to replicate the same thing, which is already like, there's no space left to get in. But if you just kind of go a few feet in another direction, I think it's always kind of interesting. Yeah. What's next? The book is out. Yeah. Doing this crazy project in Philadelphia with 20 musicians in two weeks called Room 21 at the Barnes Foundation. So it's like this really big thing. And because the book was going on, like I hadn't been able to th actually think about this piece until like four days ago. And then I'm like, man, I've got all this work. So I'm working with an incredible self-directed string ensemble from Philly called Prometheus, 15 members, uh, bringing Emily Manzo and Ben Lee, aka Baby Copperhead from New York, bringing up a, an amazing Ethiopian musician from DC, because that you have to marry him bringing over a secret guest that we can't announce till this person's around. Um, but it's kind of doing a, a large-scale composition, evening-like performance in this sort of big atrium space uh, that's in dialogue with a particular room in this very quirky, highly idiosyncratic kind of museum space called Barnes. And are the DJ sets and traditional dance music taking a backseat to these more big-picture conceptual projects? I guess they are taking a back seat. You know, it's funny because it has its own momentum, you know, so like uh, doing a show in Berlin in October. But 
yeah, I feel like those have its own thing. So in a way, I mean, DJing's wonderful. Like I love DJing, but somehow these, these with different performances, sidestepping or working with ensembles, whatever they, for me, it raises different questions in a way. So that's kind of, it's a very exciting place to be doing things. Cool. Um, do you want to take us away with a song? Yeah. So, okay. So this is the song to, to end it off. And this was one of the tracks that actually first got me really interested in asking questions about cumbia, like, you know, 10 years ago or whatever, out in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, Los Cumbieros, La Cumbia Limitada, but it's by Sonido Kumbala. And so, like, I've always really enjoyed, like, his music when I was sort of diving into the world of Sonido culture in New York City. Um, and this was this early track. You hear he's giving shout-outs to people in the Bronx. It's like all sorts of... Actually, it's not... It's a branded CD. It's not him on the mic here, but... Sonidero is a, is a selector. Exactly. So this is him playing a track with dubbing his own shout-outs over it, sort of making it his own. Yes, except that this is a CD he sort of put together, but he's not the particular person talking in this song. People just gave him all these beats, and somehow, yeah, Los Cumbieros is the group that's doing it. But they're talking over it, Sonidero style, for a mixtape that this one particular Sonidero that I talk with at length in the book compiled if that makes sense hey can you beto ya pásame el chaleco que me lo voy a poner a mí sí me okay, eso eso es que necesito tirarle a alguien acaban de llegar el grupo más envidiado pero no me copen el bajo desde la ciudad de Nueva York es eso desde la ciudad de Nueva York y ese es el máximo sabor Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Max. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, guys, go check out Jace's book. It's called Uproot. It's available via FSG Originals yes. out now in all decent bookstores. Uprootbook.com. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thank you. The thing called a medley, 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 medley. Dedicated to Rupture, I live. Of mercy, hey, this is no medley. Had this young one it's on no medley Me want some oil In a me lamp jar to keep this burning Me want some oil In a me lamp rasta for I pray You give me some oil In a me lamp jar for me pick burning To keep this burning into the night You must say A little more oil In a me lamp jar to keep this burning Now me love just to keep this burning A little more oil 
say we're solid, solid, solid I'm a woman and say she's solid as a rock I am solid, solid, solid And yes, you know that means I had not to crack 82, 83, not say I'm top plus for 84, 85 Me cool off that, give them a run for the money and me time to walk It's like a disaster or something pack No time to waste me have to launch an attack Look straight ahead and me can't look back That's why me and me request the culture for all the slack down 